years ago, there was a British pastor who was called to plant a church in Los Angeles, California. And as with any good church planter, the very first night that he arrived in LA, he went to a bar to meet people. He got into a conversation with three people he didn't know. He was asking them about what they did in LA, about their family, and eventually they turned to him and they said, and you're clearly not from around here, so what do you do in LA? He said, well, actually, I'm a pastor and I'm here to start a new church. The first person turned around and just walked away. Second person went, oh, and did exactly the same thing. And the third person said to him, but you're so nice. (laughs) As Pastor Mark said a couple of weeks ago, the weight of perception of Christians in our culture has shifted. Christians used to be respectable members of society. But today, many people view Christians as at best delusional and at worst bigoted or even harmful to society. This strange new world, as author Carl Truman puts it, is a long way from the world that many of us grew up in. But it is our reality. So how do we stand for our Savior amid such a world? Today, we're going to find out how we can do that by looking at the story of a man who failed to stand for Jesus and learning from his failures. If we haven't met, my name's Ellis. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you to our church. A warm welcome to those of you who went down to Mexico this last week. We're glad to have you back. Over the past 18 months, we have been journeying through Luke's gospel, one of the four biographical accounts we have of the life of Jesus, and we are almost at the end. We have four sermons left in Luke. Today we're in chapter 22, verse 54. You're welcome to grab a Bible and turn there now. If you get a pew Bible, it's on page 883. That's Luke chapter 22, verse 54, page 883 of the pew Bibles. We are nearing the final moments of Jesus's life. And last week, we heard about Jesus being arrested after having been betrayed by one of his disciples. And we pick up the story immediately after Jesus's arrest, beginning in verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. So Jesus has been arrested by the religious authorities, and he's taken to the chief religious officer in the nation of Israel. That's the the high priest. And most of his disciples flee at this point. But Peter doesn't. Actually, it's a very courageous thing for Peter to do, to follow after Jesus. But we're told he, he follows at a distance. Peter's clearly a little bit scared. He doesn't want to be recognized. And honestly, I don't think you can blame him. He's just seen Jesus be arrested, and Peter has just cut off one of the ears of the guards. I would be scared if I was in Peter's position. Let's keep reading verse 55. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. So the the springtime in Israel, when this takes place, it can be a little bit chilly in the middle of the night. And so the party that came to arrest 
Jesus, they make a fire in the courtyard of the high priest's home to keep warm. You have probably been in a similar setting here in the Pacific Northwest, maybe early summer, late summer. The sun has set, darkness has come upon us, the uh, heat is dissipating out of the air, and you light a fire in a fire pit, and you all gather around to try and warm yourself. And, And as you'll know, if that's your only light source, it can be hard to make out exactly the features on each of the person's faces around the fire. And so Peter thinks, ah, it's okay, I can go in and I can join this group because the light is so dim. He's hoping that he's not going to be spotted. Unfortunately for him, he is. Verse 56, then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. He's spotted. The light of the fire is is just enough to light up Peter's face. And a servant girl who who thinks she recognizes Peter takes some time to stare more intently before she exclaims, this man was with Jesus. Peter panics. He's just cut off a guard's ear. Jesus has just been arrested. What is going to happen to him? What are they going to do to him? Now, what's happening here can be taken at a, a human level. Right? Someone spotted Peter, they've called him out, and he's scared. But there's a spiritual dimension to what is going on in this moment. And to understand it, we have to turn back a few verses to the words of Jesus earlier that night, after he and his disciples had finished eating. So turn back with me to verse 31 and see what Jesus said. He said, Simon, Simon. Now, Simon was Peter's birth name. So he's speaking to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Jesus is forewarning Peter that he's about to undergo a spiritual battle. In fact, all the disciples are about to undergo a spiritual battle. You'll see that the word you in this sentence has a little footnote on it. And the footnote says that you in this verse is plural. That is, Jesus is really saying you all, or if you were from the south, y'all. How's my accent? Yeah? Jesus says to them, what's going to take place this night is an attempt by Satan to try and sabotage the entire work of Jesus. Not only is Satan going to try and sabotage Jesus and his work himself, but he's also going to try and sabotage the disciples, the very people through whom Jesus's mission is going to be taken forward, the very people through whom God is going to proclaim the good news about Jesus in the coming days, months, and years. Jesus says, Satan demanded to have you all that he might sift you all like wheat. Wheat was used to make flour for bread. Bread was the cornerstone of the Jewish diet. But to get from the fields to the grindstone, it involved a process called threshing. Wheat begins life on the stalk, but the uh, wheat grain needs to be separated from the fibrous chaff that is not used in the making of flour. So the first step after harvesting is to throw the wheat up in the air with a big pitchfork and slam it back down on the ground. This separates the wheat from the chaff, and a lot of the chaff would blow away, particularly if it was windy, but not enough. And so there would still be one step left, and that would be to sift the wheat from the chaff. Here I have 
some wheat and some chaff, and here is a sieve. And once they had threshed the wheat on the floor, they would begin to sift it like this to separate the chaff out. The chaff would fall down to the ground and the wheat berries would remain in the sieve. Jesus is using this image to describe what is going to take place that night in the spiritual realm. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Satan wants to sift the disciples. He wants to see if they're up to the challenge. He wants to see if he can kind of pick some of them off. He thinks, Satan thinks that they're not up to scratch. You know, it's a little bit like when uh, Satan approaches God in the opening chapters of the book of Job, and he says, hey, have you considered your servant Job? If you let me go after him, I bet that Job will turn around and curse you right back to your face. Satan's doing the same thing here. He's saying, I want to sift your disciples. I want to see if they will be wheat or they will be chaff. He wants to prove that they're not capable of carrying on the mission of Christ after he is gone. That's what's going on around that fire pit as Peter is huddled with those others. It's a spiritual battle. Just like the one Pastor Mark talked about several weeks ago, Satan is prowling around the disciples like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan wants to prove the disciples are weak. He wants to show that they're chaff. They're not up to anything. They're not worth keeping around. It's not only the early disciples that Satan sifts like wheat, is it? Satan is sifting Jesus' 21st century disciples too. He loves to come at us and, and tempt us and see if, see if we stand or if we fall through the cracks. Perhaps he's doing it to you in your life right now. That's what he's doing to Peter in that moment around the fire. The servant girl sees him and calls out, you've been with Jesus, but really what's happening at a spiritual level is Satan is sifting Peter to see if he's up to scratch. Will he pass the test or will he fail? Let's see what Peter says in response. Turn back with me to verse 57. But Peter denied it saying, woman, I do not know him. Peter fails the test. In fact, he's emphatic in his denial. That verb used there for I do not know doesn't just mean I don't know Jesus personally like a friend. It means I have no knowledge whatsoever about Jesus. Like most of us would say we have no knowledge whatsoever about quantum physics, right? It's a ridiculous claim. For Peter to make. He's in Jerusalem. Everyone in Jerusalem knows about Jesus right now. He's the most talked about person in all of Israel. For Peter to say, I have no knowledge whatsoever of Jesus is a complete, total, obvious lie. But the attacks from Satan just keep coming. Verse 58, and a little later someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. Another person sees Peter and accuses him of being one of them, likely a reference to Peter being one of the disciples. And Peter denies this charge too. He says, I'm not a disciple of Jesus. Now, not only has Peter denied even 
knowing who Jesus is, but now he's denied his very identity. For the last three years, Peter has identified as a disciple of Jesus. That's who I am. And right here he says, no, I am not a disciple of Jesus. Satan is sifting Peter. And right now, it looks like Peter is chaff. But then for about an hour, no one says anything to Peter. Perhaps he thinks he's gotten away with it. But then we read this, verse 59. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. Just like you all know, I'm not from around these parts. Those living in Jerusalem knew when someone was not from around Jerusalem. In the same way that my accent and my quirky Britishisms give me away, Peter's accent and his mannerisms gave him away too. Based upon this, one man insists that Peter must have been with Jesus because Peter is clearly from Galilee. And that's where Jesus began his ministry and amassed his following. Satan is sifting Peter once again. And once again, Peter fails. But before he can even finish his response, he's interrupted. Verse 60, but Peter said, man, I do not know what you were talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Cock a doodle doo. The still universally recognized sound that the night is over and the morning has arrived. And right as this happens, we read this, verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Perhaps through a window or a doorway, maybe when he was being moved from one interrogation to another, but at exactly the moment when the rooster crows, Jesus turns and he looks directly at Peter. Can you imagine how Peter must have felt in that moment? Satan has sifted Peter, and it seems as Peter is merely chaff. The look of Jesus must have been one of the most painful moments in Peter's life. He's failed the test. And Peter breaks down. He runs out of the courtyard, away from all the people. And he cries, and he cries, and he cries. Maybe you've been there too. A moment where you knew you blew it. Maybe you're there right now. Maybe it was the moment you got found out for cheating. Maybe it was the moment those fateful words came out of your mouth. Maybe it was the moment your misconduct came to light. Maybe it was the moment you clicked on that button. Maybe it was the morning after, the night before. Maybe it was the look on the other person's eyes as it all went down. Maybe you've been there too. And the shame of that moment runs deep. You failed. Or did you? 
back when Jesus explained to Peter and the disciples what was about to happen, we only read half of what Jesus said. Let's go back and read the rest. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But, but, the story is not over. There is more to be written. There is yet hope. But, Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. But, Jesus, Jesus stood in the gap for Peter. Jesus prays for Peter. Jesus prays that Peter's faith may not fail. And the prayers of Jesus do not fail. Jesus is God himself in the flesh. You can be certain that when Jesus prays for something, it will happen. It's guaranteed. He's the king of the universe. It will come to pass. Peter's faith will not fail. Yes, it might hit a low moment. It might be the lowest moment of Peter's life. But Peter's story doesn't finish there. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers when you have turned again. Not if you turn again, but when you have turned again. Yes, Peter is going to turn away from Jesus, but Jesus has prayed for him, and Peter is guaranteed to turn back to Jesus, because nothing can snatch Peter out of Jesus's hand. Jesus's grip on Peter's life is so strong that no work of Satan can prevent Peter from remaining in Jesus' grasp. Peter will come back to Jesus, and not only that, but when he comes back, Jesus is going to use Peter to strengthen his brothers, to strengthen the disciples. Peter not only comes back to Jesus, but his is the greatest comeback story since the resurrection. You see, Peter became the leader. 50 days later, Peter was standing in Jerusalem with an angry crowd of Jews in front of him. And he said to them, you crucified Jesus. But God raised him from the dead. This is that same Peter who denied Jesus in front of that small group standing up and proclaiming his name to others. And Peter was arrested for it. And then he was set free. And he went straight back out and proclaimed Jesus again. And then he was arrested again. And then an angel came in the middle of the night and set him free. And he went back out and proclaimed Jesus again. This is that same Peter who denied Jesus. Peter, who at the end of his life was crucified, but so that he might not dishonor Jesus, he he was crucified upside down. This is that same Peter, and this is the power of Jesus's prayer for him. Can I get an amen? amen. And do you know what? Jesus doesn't just pray for Peter. He prays for you too. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would intercede for the rebels. That's us. And the writer to the Hebrews confirms that Jesus always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God. Right now, Jesus is praying for you. And he is praying that your faith will not fail. 
He is praying that whatever sifting Satan might be doing in your life, that you will stand strong. And that even if it looks like you might have failed, that you will turn back. That even in your deepest, darkest moment, God will use you out of that to strengthen the faith of others. That your story isn't yet finished. I sat with a man a couple of months ago who shared with me about how he'd come out of the darkest season of his life. Through his own mistakes, he had almost shipwrecked everything he cared about. But by the mercy of God and the love of his family, he didn't. He went through the muck and he threw himself upon Jesus. And Jesus picked him up and put him back together. And he came out the other side. And he was saying to me, Ellis, there's a lot of people who know about what I did. What should I say to them if they bring it up? I could tell that there was this sense of shame still about what was going on. So I said to him, perhaps if you were asked about it, you might say to them, yes, that was a dark moment. But I think it was the most important moment of my life. Because on that day, it was there that Jesus met me. It was there that although I had fallen as badly as as anyone could, that I didn't stay down because I looked to Jesus and I said, pick me up. And he grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and he pulled me up again. He put me back on my feet and he has begun writing a new story. This man's life has been transformed. His family's life has been transformed and he is being used to strengthen the faith of countless people others. That is the power of Jesus. And that is why the darkest day of your life may be the most important day of your life. And I wonder if Peter felt the same. Satan sifted him like wheat. And for all intents and purposes, it looked like Peter was just chaff. But Satan didn't count on the intercession of Jesus. Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail, and it didn't. Peter repented, and he turned, and he became perhaps the greatest weapon of the kingdom of God against Satan. Perhaps Peter looked back on that moment when the rooster crowed, and Jesus looked at him at the most important moment in his life. Because it was in that moment that he finally let Jesus save him rather than trying to save himself. It's only when we finally give up on trying to do it ourselves, when we realize how big of a failure we are, when we acknowledge that we have no power or ability whatsoever to withstand Satan's sitting, it's only in that moment that we allow Jesus the opportunity to save us himself. So how might we respond? Well, I think there might be three different groups of people here this morning who might respond in different ways. One group might be people who are here this morning and you would acknowledge, I am at a low point in my life. I am a complete failure. I am ashamed 
of what I have done. And I want to say, if that's you, you could not be in a better place. You could not be in a better place because it is only when you are totally broken that you can experience the totality of Jesus' salvation for you. And so if that's you this morning, throw yourself into the arms of Jesus. Give up and let him pick you up, put you back on your feet, pour out his spirit upon you and send you forth. So that's one group who might be here this morning. Another group might be those who've, who've known that grace and mercy of Jesus in their life already. You've seen, you, you, you've seen the turnaround story in your own life. You hit rock bottom and Jesus grabbed you and pulled you back out. And if that's you, perhaps that word to Peter, when you have turned, strengthen your brothers and sisters. Perhaps this morning the word to you is to strengthen those around you who you see right now maybe look like they're chaff. The Lord wants to use you to come alongside them, not in judgment, not in condemnation, but in compassion and mercy, to bear their burdens with them, to be used by God to help pick them back up and restore them. That's the second group. But maybe a third group will be those who are here who have never had a moment like Peter had. Never had a moment where you felt like you really blew it. You kind of always felt like, ah, oh, I'm pretty good. I, I've got everything under control. Maybe you're so confident that you might even say along with Peter, verse 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And maybe... If you're in that group, you need to heed the warning of Jesus. Verse 34, Jesus said, I tell to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Pride comes before the fall. We're all just one rooster crow away from a big fall. And if you're in that group, you would say, yeah, I'm probably a little bit too overconfident. This morning, I invite you to repent of that pride to pray that Jesus might save you from a moment of humiliation and that you might learn to wholly rely upon him. So which of those three groups might you be? Maybe you're here this morning, you're like, I blew it. Maybe you're here this morning, you're like, I've had that turnaround story. Maybe you're here this morning, I'm like, hey, I'm ready to go to die with Jesus. Who do you identify with? If you feel like you blew it, there's mercy and grace here this morning. Throw yourself into the arms of Jesus. If you've known his story in your life, turn and be used by God to strengthen your brothers and sisters. And if you are feeling a little bit overconfident, please get on your knees before the Lord. Plead that he may not humiliate you in order that you may learn humility, but that you may humble yourself instead. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I pray for each of those groups of people. Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning and they feel like they have failed. Perhaps it was even a huge effort just to walk through the doors this morning because of the shame that Satan was seeking to pour on them. Lord, I thank you for the finished work of Christ upon the cross, that their sin is forgiven, their sin in the past, their sin in the present, their sin in the future. Lord, I pray that they 
may know the power and strength of Jesus to pick them up. And Lord, I pray that they may turn to him, turn away from their sin and turn to Christ and allow him to set them on the trajectory that he has for their life. Lord, I pray for that second group, those who've known your grace and mercy in the past. I pray, Lord, that you would use us. We are your servants. Help us to see those around us who are falling right now, who are struggling. Lord, help us to come alongside them in a a graceful, compassionate, merciful way. Lord, help us not to judge their folly, knowing that, that we too were once in that same situation. Lord, may we help to bear their burdens, to minister to them. Lord, set people on our hearts right now, people in our lives who we need to reach out to today, this week, to encourage them, to lift them up. Lord, I pray for that final group, which all of us can fall into. I pray, Lord, that we would humble ourselves before you. Lord, I pray that we might not be so confident in ourselves, but instead have confidence in Jesus. That we might trust wholly, totally, completely upon him. The lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. The lion of Judah who roars in power and victory. And that victory is ours in the name of Jesus.
us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org. but some days they want to wriggle and wrestle out and get away, right? And I just grab on tighter, no matter how hard they tried. That's Jesus' grip on your life. Satan's sifting, it's not going to do anything. Because Jesus has got a hold on you. And the work that he began, he will bring to completion. Amen? If you're here today and you need prayer for anything at all, we have a prayer team who will be around the corner in the prayer chapel behind the stained glass. Please go allow them to lay hands on you, to pray for you, to stand in the gap, to intercede on your behalf. If you're new with us, thanks for joining us. We're really glad that you chose to come and worship with us this morning. Pastor Julie is going to be back in the lobby at the wood wall. She'd love to meet you. She's got a gift for you to say thanks for coming and joining us. And for all of us, I want to leave you with a blessing. The way we receive a blessing is to raise up our hands like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace, both now and forevermore, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.